Okay, we're gonna take it away. You ready? Ready, spaghetti. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of In Fellowship, the podcast where we explore community building through a chapter-by-chapter read of The Lord of the Rings. My name is Anna. And my name is Ellen. And in today's episode, we are discussing Book 1, Chapter 2, The Shadow of the Past, exploring how community is built through storytelling. Anna, how are you doing today? Uh, you know, I'm excited to talk about this chapter. I think the first chapter is tough because it's a lot of sort of getting to know our characters, but it's a lot of laying the foundation. And I think in this next chapter here, we're going to discuss, we get so much more of like the meat and potatoes of the story. And like we talked about some of the foreshadowing of what will come next that I was really excited to get into, into some of those pieces. Yes. Um, I was trying to decide there if I was going to do a... What is tater, sir? Uh, when you said meat and potatoes. And I was like, we'll just go for it. Potatoes. That's right. I can't wait to be in a position where we have to explain to our younger listeners the um, taking the hobbits to Isengard early stages of YouTube and what the internet was before it was quite the rabbit hole it is today. Um, because bless it, there was just such delightful content to be located around <laughs> Lord of the Rings. It's ripe 2004, boil a mashem stick in a stew. Uh, the remix. early aughts were a time. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll remember those fondly. Mm-hmm. And never return to them again. That's right. Okay, but I think that leads us into, uh, as far as today is concerned, storytelling, our theme today. So, Ellen, um, you were going to give us uh, a little bit of a sense for the, the story of the chapter, as well as um, hearing from you about kind of your thoughts about the theme today. Yes, I do have a story about a story f- for today's theme. A story about storytelling. If, if It's very will. meta. It is very meta. Um, and I was excited that I was assigned this, to tell the story for today because unsurprisingly, as someone who is uh, happily co-hosting a podcast about Lord of the Rings, I love stories. Uh, and I think a good story is a really powerful tool in a lot of ways. It can inspire people to action. It can change opinions. Um, it can transport you somewhere else. You know, there's really just a lot of good that comes out of stories. And when I think about who does good storytelling best, I think about Disney. And as a disclaimer, um, this will become clear in my story. I spent some time in the past working for the mouse, as one would say. So you can take uh, the bias that comes with having been a Disney cast member into account as I share my story. It should be noted that Disney is not a sponsor of this podcast. Yet. No, but if, if, yeah, if they want to be, <laughs> hit us yeah, up. Yeah, Disney, we're open to any, any uh, interest you have in this podcast. <laughs> That's right. So when you are hired to work at Disney, there, there's a lot that goes into it. But one of the first things you do is you take this class called Traditions. And it is all about company culture. And this happens at Disney University. And you can just imagine what that looks like in your mind's eye. And I went back into my traditions handbook and I opened it up. And already on page two, there is the following quote. The essence of good storytelling is all about evoking emotions in the audience. 
And that's a quote from John Hench, who is a very famous Disney Imagineer. And that page goes on to talk about um, the common goals of the Disney company, which is to create happiness through the following three uh, parts of a pie. Immersive experiences, exceptional guest service, and stories. And those three coming together create emotional connection or really, you know, a place where community can thrive. And there are many ways that guests are introduced to Disney stories. Maybe you're familiar with those from, you know, watching the movies growing up. You've seen something on the Disney Channel, the old cartoons. But specifically, I want to talk about the parks and uh, what it was like as I was working there. So I'll tell you about my first time visiting Disney as a cast member. Um, We've already had traditions and we do what we call a park walk, go and walk the park. And my first park walk was in Magic Kingdom. And if you haven't been to Magic Kingdom in Florida, you might not know that it is almost impossible to catch a glimpse of the castle outside of the boundaries of Magic Kingdom. So you don't see the castle as you're driving in. You don't see it as you're walking up to the front. And this is, you know, my first time at Disney since I was five. And so I'm in the bus with the other cast members trying to, you know, crane my neck and see, is the castle? Nope, I can't see it. We go in through the front gates and that leaves you in this town square. And so you're turning left and you're turning left and you're turning left and you're finally at the end of Main Street USA and at the end is the castle. And I'm sure they timed it this way, but we're walking down Main Street USA towards the castle and the castle show starts, which is like where all of the princesses come out and they're spinning and they're twirling and maybe I'm dehydrated, but I just start crying. I have had such an emotional connection to the stories created by this company And the park is just such a good physical manifestation of narrative storytelling that seeing all of this come together into the castle uh, literally brings me to tears in what should have been like a very professional moment as I'm wearing my suit and walking with my new colleagues and trying to look like an adult. Um, So now whenever I think about the, the story of Disney and that castle... Um, I think about my first trip there, weeping as an employee, and how this this emotional connection that Disney does such a good job building um, a community can really be built around it. Because people who love Disney, they have this shared emotional connection. You know, you see that with a lot of fandoms, but it's created through their love of these exceptionally told stories. Um, And that's the the story that I wanted to bring to you today. I love the imagery that you've just evoked for us. In particular, I am thinking about a very like raucous camp bus as the bus into Disney, where you're with all of these uh, folks who presumably have some awareness of Disney culture, but potentially also are just as sort of geeky about Disney um, experiences and movies and have played a role in their childhood, right? So we're evoking this idea of nostalgia and finally you get to kind of see the the man behind the curtain as it were. Um, and so I love that imagery. Um, and then I also have to note that there is um, possibly 
some patterns in behavior for you specifically, Ellen, when you're dehydrated, that potentially emotions <laughs> run high um, and that what little water you have left in your body can sometimes <laughs> manifest into tears. Um, and I won't, I won't share too many stories about that, but... There are now several stories that you've shared where you were like, and I was dehydrated, but also weeping about the emotion. So I think um, what I mean to say about that is that there is some level that vulnerability plays in our susceptibility to good storytelling as well, right? So when we feel particularly maybe nervous about meeting colleagues or when we're a little bit kind of off kilter because we're off a different schedule or we're in a new place, that's something that feels familiar, that evokes emotion, um, that builds connection with with us can feel that much more powerful because we have very little else that's sort of making us feel comfortable, right? So it, that's kind of an interesting, an interesting experience that that you've noted and a, and a good story and well told. I I will say I do tend to get um I get a little overcooked <laughs> when it's hot out and uh, I'm maybe dehydrated and yeah sometimes that leads to weeping. Um, but I don't think that would happen at just any job. I think the the stories of Disney and then seeing those characters that we grew up with, seeing them all come out on the stage as I am walking towards them on the castle, I was very overcooked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my story. And thank you, Anna, for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, I'd like to transition us now into the discussion of today's chapter uh, and examples of our theme. So do you want to start us off with some of the key points from today's chapter? Absolutely. So what I think is important for listeners to note about the, the story is that in this chapter, there are very few major events, as much as there is a lot of discussion and a lot of backstory that lays a foundation for things yet to come in the books, which I think is important to note. Right. But so for major events, right, what we have is that uh, Gandalf is away for a long time, and Frodo remains in the Shire, seemingly continuing to follow in Bilbo's footsteps evermore. So he's not aging, he's making friends with the younger, um, the younger hobbits, and he continues to throw Bilbo's birthday party, even though most folks at this point assume that Bilbo is dead because he's been out of the Shire for so long. There are rumors from outside the Shire that things are getting quite bad. Um, and when Gandalf returns, he more or less confirms this, that there is sort of power growing, I believe, in the West, and that there's a lot of um, movement within Middle-earth um, as a result of that. Gandalf gives the backstory of this one ring that Bilbo has left to Frodo, and Gollum, who's a major character who we'll come to know more about, uh, but we get his backstory as well. And then ultimately Gandalf encourages Frodo to leave the Shire, and Frodo, after some trepidation, does decide to leave and go to the elves, and he decides he'll take the ring with him, and then um, Samwise Gamgee will also go to see the elves. Those are really sort of the major points. Did I miss anything from the chapter? You did not miss anything. Um, I did love in this chapter, one of the cool things about these books that I forgot about reading because normally I listen to them is that they do have a script in here and every once in a while little drawings from Tolkien. Um, and I, I love in here that it has the 
flowing script that you see on the one ring actually drawn out in the book. I think that's a cool detail. Mm-hmm. Yes, and there is, um, if anybody is interested, uh, you can go a lot of places on the internet and learn um, all of the different languages that are spoken in Middle Earth, including Elvish. I know I had a friend in middle school who learned Elvish script because they were very much into the Lord of the Rings. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, there are whole groups, sites, uh, you know, whatever, um, that really allow you to, to dig more into that. Um, but the script is really beautiful. And I think, um, often if you see like Lord of the Rings tattoos or whatever, like that is the script that you see. It's pretty iconic. One might say there are online communities where you could go and and learn how to do this. Yes. A much more articulate person might have said that. (laughs) I was ready for it. So I guess let's talk about some examples then through this discussion, largely that's, you know, the the main event of the chapter is Frodo's conversation with Gandalf. Um, where did we see examples of storytelling? In the literal first paragraph, there is the word story, which I underlined, talking about what had happened in the last chapter about Bilbo disappearing with the ring. And Mm -hmm. about how eventually it became a fireside story for young hobbits and mad baggins who used to vanish with a bang and a flash and reappear with bags of jewelry and gold. And I thought that was interesting because it used the word legend. And we see that later on as well. um, The name that hobbits only knew in Legends of the Dark Past in reference to the land of Mordor. So the question that I wanted to bring to you there is... What is the difference between a legend and a story? We see at the start of this chapter talking about Bilbo and how he sort of becomes a character of legend. Um, And we don't think of that as a malicious thing. But then a couple pages later, how the land of Mordor is a word from legend. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to hear your thoughts on what makes something a legend and what the difference is between a legend and a story. Well, I have two thoughts about that. Uh, One thought being time seems like a key element of something becoming a legend because um, you're sort of telling a story over a period of time where it transcends a time and a place. So I think that's one piece that makes something legendary. I think the other thought I have is really regarding the topic. So I think in, you know, in Bilbo's sense, it's that he's sort of broken cultural norms. So thinking about that, he's really, um, he's memorable because he isn't the cultural standard for the community. And so that is notable. Um, And I think that can be really memorable, right? We talked a little bit about last episode, sort of the expectation and reaffirmation of cultural norms through cultural rites and passages. So if Bilbo sort of has this legacy anyway of, of defying some of those norms, then that kind of extends beyond the existence of um, maybe the community or again, those who know him well, because it was so non-normative, it was so memorable. And I think the other is really like good and evil. So some of those major components that come into our lives that we think deeply about or that scare us, 
those things can become legendary again because they're so non-normative and they they play to the way that often our brains want to work which is categorizing things into like major good or major evil and that we don't often leave a lot of gray space so i think mortar in that regard is very legendary in that it is so evil and so potent and so memorable to the shire that it becomes a story or a legend um, in that regard. I think those sort of really emotional responses to a story might be some of the things that really call for it to then become legend. I don't know, what are your thoughts about legend versus story? I think you're right that the time you know nothing becomes a legend without time there's that time aspect to changing a story into a legend i don't know i think of legends as like stories plus Mm -hmm. um and yeah i think really the the main thing is that there has to be people to keep telling the story and a community can maybe take on this story and weave it into their culture and make it a part of their legends but if there isn't a group of people telling it over a long period of time then it's not going to reach legend status. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, is it Samwise who does a lot of, you know, he believes these stories in spite of others being doubtful or disinterested. And and Samwise is really willing, I think, to take those stories as much more fact and um, maybe instruction about what could come next. And I think a lot of some of the older habits are a little less willing to buy into legend as truth and are a little bit more susceptible to believing that the legend is that story plus some imagination that it couldn't have been that bad Um, and so with distance and without some intentional storytelling there is a little bit of forgetting maybe that comes along with the the sort of promulgation of a legend what you just said there about people being dismissive of sam's stories number one really lets me go into my next example that I had brought, which was Ted Sandyman. They're talking in the bar, and he says, I can hear fireside tales and children's stories at home if I want to, and really dismisses Sam. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also makes me think of later on in the books, in the third book, do you remember the plant king's foil that ends up healing everybody who has been hurt by the, the nine, the witch king, Angmar? No, not even a little bit. <laughs> okay. So, remember, there's, like, the, the I think her name is Gertrude or Gretchen, someone will correct me, is the healer, and she kind of gets a raw deal because Tolkien basically writes, her was like, she talks too much. Ugh, women, am I right? Yes, women. <laughs> Blah. With their words. With their words. And, uh... Their wives' tales is what I'm going to draw this theme back to. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Aragorn needs this plant, um, and he keeps saying the name of it, saying the name of it, and it's like the magic one that he's going to crinkle up and put in the water, and it will bring everybody back from death. And nobody knows what it is. The man who's running the healing house doesn't know what it is, but he said, you may know it by king's foil, and the guy goes, that's an old wives' tale. We don't use that. And Gretchen Gertrude is like, I know where that is, and I will go get it. And it stuck out to me because it's an obvious example of the stories that women tell in community 
being disregarded as like, well, that's like the end. So that's an old wives tale. That's children's story. That's, you know, um, but there's truth in it. And it ends up saving everybody's lives who has been hurt in in the battle because she can go get this king's foil and uh, save Eowyn, save, I think it's Mary. Um, It just does, it does a lot of good in book three. So stories are important. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there are so many examples of that throughout these books, but also through you know, through our through our current time, when we think about colonial powers um, invading and, and taking over, you know, local communities and being susceptible to disease or to plants. And they're like, this is such a mystery. And then, you know, years later, science has discovered that. And, you know, native communities and indigenous communities have said for a long time, of course, that's how that works. We've been telling each other this since the beginning of time. You just didn't listen to the knowledge that was here because it wasn't presented in a way that you affirmed it and it became something to be dismissed. So I think that's um, something that I've been thinking about too. Like, And I think that kind of plays into um, Gandalf's point a little bit that I'll talk about. Um, but when do we tell stories and who are we willing to listen to? What's the right moment for a story to be told? And are we able to be receptive to it? So Gandalf... Um, in the chapter talks a little bit about waiting until daylight to tell the full story about the dangers of the ring and says such matters were best left until daylight. So really thinking about the appropriate time to tell a story and I think it's a little I think Gandalf is a little bit of a storyteller for the stage right I think he does enjoy the theatrical he does the fireworks and really wants to kind of hold off into telling the story. But I think also because he's dealing with something old and magical and sort of beyond his own, I don't know, maybe understanding, that he really sort of exerts what little power he has over the situation to say, mm, maybe we should wait until it's light and we can kind of like be aware of our surroundings and and, and maybe it could be less frightening because we have sun to you know sort of scare away these shadows or because we can um feel a little bit safer as we tell the story so in any event i think i think that when we tell a story might be just as important as how and what stories we tell um so that they are heard in the ways that we intend them and so that they have the impact that we mean them to i mean i think gandalf shows an awareness of that I was listening to this chapter in addition to reading it, and one of the lines that stuck out to me was from that moment where he said some things should not even be told in the morning of the Shire, that there are some stories that are just too horrible. Not even the bright, sunny morning of the Shire is an appropriate spot to really banish away the shadows there. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think you're exactly right, Anna, that it matters who's telling it, and when they're telling it in order for the message to be received in its original intent. Yeah, and I noticed that too, you know, sort of on the flip side of that coin to really think about the stories we tell ourselves. So really with Gollum's backstory, you know, when Gollum was known as the artist formerly known as Smeagol. A.K.A. A.K.A. Um, and that he, when he murders his friend, uh, Deagle, that the he tells a story to himself about the deservingness 
that he has for the ring. Is deserving this a word? We're making it a word. Um, that he deserves the ring and that Deagle was going to give it to him as a birthday present. And that's why he was in the right to strangle his friend. Um, and that he comes to believe this story because he has told it to himself so many times. So I think, you know, while also thinking about how we tell stories to one another and when we tell them, I think we also have to be really intentional about the stories we tell ourselves and what that either gives us permission to do or what that leads us to conclude about ourselves or about others because sometimes those um, those stories can be just as dangerous as the stories that others tell about us. Well, Anna, it was his birthday, so I don't know who you are to judge when the correct time to strangle somebody is, but if you're going to do it, you should probably do it on your birthday. It was, um, as I wrote that note, I was like, this is very dark uh, and perhaps also not fit for the morning uh, in, you know, in the Shire. It just seemed very like, how could a person be so separated from a moment that this is a story that they could tell? But I think you know, it's it's easy to be critical in this moment because it, it seems so fantastical. But I do think that each of us are probably a little bit guilty of telling stories where we maybe behaved poorly or we didn't behave as well as we could have, hopefully not in murdering someone or strangling them for something, but really in just maybe not being our best. And then we told a story about ourselves later to ourselves why we couldn't have done it anyway you know what are those excuses that we make for ourselves and how can we be really careful about the stories that we tell to ourselves to make sure that we aren't using them to um, endorse dangerous or you know maybe just poor decisions uh, that we make there is another moment of stories in this chapter that I wanted to bring up because um, it, it coincides with one of the chapter highlights you pointed out earlier. So earlier in about before the halfway point of the chapter, Sam talks about how the half-remembered stories about the elves as the hobbits knew have always moved him most deeply. And I think his being moved by these stories about the elves is one of the key things that allows him to move forward with Frodo even just at the end of this chapter, and so confidently decide that he is going to journey with him really to the end. Um, and I think that the, the story of the elves and that emotional connection that he has from that story gives him a lot of strength later on. Yeah, I wrote that down as well, and that I have in a here a quote, and I'm not sure what page number it's on, but I wrote that Sam loves the tales of the elves, and that's, quote, why he listened. So because he's so attentive to this, because he's so interested in this, that he knows the stories more deeply. And yeah, that does allow him to then make this decision at the end of the chapter to go with Frodo, because he feels that um, he's going to maybe get to see something that he's only ever heard stories about, or he's going to get to see um, folk that he's never seen before. And, and that allows him to be brave. So I think that's an interesting note as well. And speaking of being dehydrated and weepy at the end of his being outside cutting the grass and then brought inside and said, nope, you're going to go see the, all of the elves, he bursts into tears. So not just me. Comes full circle. Full circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Poor little Sam. Poor little Sam. Is there any other moment of storytelling in this chapter that you want to talk about? 
Well, I think, I mean, the brunt of the chapter, right, is the literal storytelling of the One Ring and the story of Gollum. So throughout the chapter, we're really seeing a lot of storytelling. And through the lens of Gandalf, who I might add is like a little brusque about, you know, Frodo's questions or needing to kind of ask uh, to understand. And he's like almost indignant that Frodo is upset or has questions or maybe doesn't understand like what he's just explained to him or what Frodo is now being implicated to do moving forward. Right. And Gandalf has been thinking about this one story for the last nine years plus and is telling it with really his agenda in mind. I don't know. Maybe maybe he isn't. Maybe he's telling this with a lot of grace to get Frodo on the same page. But he does seem at the end surprised, pleased, but surprised that after this long story with all of these horrible implications for Frodo and the rest of his life, that Frodo agrees unprompted to go go on a quest with this ring. Yeah, and that um, I thought Frodo was kind of frustrated, you know, with Gandalf, quote, like letting Bilbo keep the ring and then, quote, making Frodo keep it. So I think Frodo in this moment is maybe telling a story to himself about like why it can't be him and why um you know he's not able to do it could there be someone else that could sort of take up the mantle and then Gandalf really challenges Frodo to destroy the ring but he can't and he's kind of entranced by it and then Gandalf revealed that like he probably also couldn't do it but then is like surprised like you said that Frodo takes it up and is deciding to really carry that forward and it's just it's a very interesting interaction because I think Gandalf at until that point had been kind of like a like a wild uncle, right? Like he's like the fun uncle who comes to the <laughs> he comes to the birthday parties and he brings fireworks and it's like, oh yeah, it's Gandalf. And now all of a sudden he brings with him like all of this knowledge and a little bit more um, sort of extensive worldly experience. Um, and it's just, it's a very I think interesting and notable shift in the relationship that he has with Frodo from less fun uncle to more like mentor or more of a leadership role. Yeah, it's really showing Frodo his whole self and giving him a little sneak of, you know, I've, in all of the years that I've left the Shire, I've never left it unguarded. And it's it's like having that conversation with a child of this is this scenario, you've only seen this little snippet of it. Or going back to our first story, it's you've only seen the guest side of the park and now you're going to see the backstage and the tunnels and all of that. It's it's widening Frodo's lens um, and Gandalf's new role that he's bringing here as authoritative figure. Well, that was a lovely discussion about the theme in the chapter. Have we covered all of the instances of the word story and the theme that we wanted to? Yeah, I had um, just a couple of quotes then that I thought were notable from the chapter. One is Gandalf about hobbits says, Soft as butter they can be, and yet sometimes as tough as old tree roots. And I really love that dichotomy. Like, may we each contain multitudes like butter and old tree roots. (laughs) thought that was nice. Yeah, I want that on my uh, uh, tombstone. Soft as butter, tough as tree roots. (laughs) Ellen. That's your epitaph. I will I will get to work on that. Yeah, thank you. He also says, 
um, to Frodo, and I think this one really resonated with me the most. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. So if not, not you, who? And if not now, when? Kind of a challenge to Frodo. So I really appreciated that. Um, and then Gandalf says to Frodo, while Frodo is condemning Gollum, so right with the five seconds that he's had to like really process this information he's like oh Gollum is the worst I can't believe that he told Mirkwood that you know there is a Baggins in the Shire who has the ring and now my whole life is upturned and ba 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 and uh Gandalf says to Frodo many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life can you give it to them then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment and I thought that was just a nice little reality check for Frodo to be like, all right, slow your roll. You have, <laughs> you've known about this for like five seconds. You need to hang on and not be so quick to go to the biggest extreme possible uh, with the information that you have. This isn't the action item that I'm bringing for the day, but we should all probably be a little bit more like Gandalf and a little bit less judgy like Frodo in this moment. Too many opinions. Yeah, and too many opinions that sometimes have some lasting implications for folks and like if you aren't prepared to really make that decision about someone um then perhaps you shouldn't make that decision about someone okay well ellen did you want to charge us with our action item for this week yes so the part of our discussion today that really stuck with me is our discussion on a difference between a legend and a story And so your action item for this week is to ask someone in your life to tell you a story of a legend that they heard in their childhood. And so I'm really thinking like Sandlot-esque, the beast. So ask somebody that you know, what was a legend from their childhood? Um, And maybe use that time to think about one from your own as well. I'm really excited about this, um, in particular because, one, I love the Sandlot movie, but two, because I feel like everybody has a story in their childhood about, like, the one older neighborhood member who lives alone and, like, the backstory for them, and they're always a witch or they're, like, a CIA agent. Like, there's always just such a extravagant backstory that I may have to- Their house is haunted. That's right. That's right. Um, there are two little, uh, little kids in my neighborhood, I might have to ask them what legends they believe in and just kind of see what they have to say about that. Oh, that's lovely to think about the kids who are now in their childhood building their own legends. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Anna, and I hope uh, you get to hear some great stories from the, the kiddos in your neighborhood or maybe from other people that you ask. Today's podcast was brought to you by Ring of Power Anti-Aging Serum. Stay young forever for the low price of your mortal soul. Our music is by Robert Zahn and Simon Dom. If you have thoughts on today's episode or homework assignment, send us a voicemail or email at infellowshippodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to take care of your community Stay hydrated, and thank you for joining us today in fellowship. I will say I really enjoyed the number of times during this very long story, as the text points out, 
um, we hear Sam clipping the grass outside of the window. <laughs> it might be apropos then if you can hear my partner running the lawnmower <laughs> in the background. <laughs> Do you think he had a lawnmower or was he like out there with scissors? I truly imagine him with oversized hedge clippers just like getting increasingly close to the window. Yeah, it's fun to imagine him like a little hobbit shark getting closer and closer <laughs> with his shears. Right. Is that elves? Did he say elves? Did you hear that? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, they won't notice if I just, I'll just trim this one leaf for like five mm-hmm. minutes as they mm-hmm. talk about it. Clip, clip, clip. Little leaf. Clip, clip. Mm-hmm. <laughs>